Welcome to Lifeology. I am James Miller, your host and a licensed psychotherapist. I'm looking forward to spending this time with you as we learn some pretty amazing life lessons. Let's get started. I would love to connect with you. Be sure to follow me on all social media platforms under the name James Miller Lifeology, except for Twitter, which is James M Lifeology. I am also very active on Instagram and create many videos with quick tips and tools that you can immediately implement. Be sure to say hello and follow me there. There are thousands of amazing self-help books out there, but what happens when you're struggling at the moment and need help now? Well, my new book, Life Lessons, You Are the Experts on Your Life, a workbook, is your new go-to self-help book. I wrote it specifically for when you don't know how to overcome a challenge. Each chapter gives you a framework on how to tackle your situation. I help you focus on what already works for you. Your situation today may be different, but the emotions you're currently feeling, you felt them before, and you did something that helped you. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. This book is specifically written to help you overcome any obstacle you may face. Purchase your book, Life Lessons, You Are the Experts on Your Life, a workbook on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. Once again, purchase Life Lessons, You Are the Experts on Your Life, a workbook on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. My guest today is Dr. Fleet Mall, who's a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world through his Heart Mind Institute. He is a meditation teacher, executive coach, seminar leader, and social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social transformation. In today's episode, Dr. Mall and I talk about his new book, Radically Responsible, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Welcome to Lifeology. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, James. I am looking forward to this. We had a great call in the pre-call. We both took a, took us forever to finish our dissertations. Obviously, you finished yours before I finished mine, uh, but I'm truly inspired by that. Now, the person with whom I'm speaking today, though, I was reading about your backstory, and this polished person here today is not the person that was perhaps as polished years ago. What's the difference between then versus now? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't feel that different in some ways, but... Um, you know, I was, uh, I'm a baby boomer. I came of age in the sixties and, uh, went headlong into the counterculture of that time. All the, you know, the drug, sex, rock and roll, mm -hmm. radical politics, yeah. all of it, uh, very involved in the, you know, anti-Vietnam war demonstrations and all that. And, and, you know, I, I kind of graduated from high school with a big hole in my gut, typical angry young man. And so, you know, I just kind of went headlong into what was happening at that time with a, with a lot of anger and, and confusion. Um, you know, but at the same time, I'd always been a spiritual seeker, always interested in the mind. Uh, I think always had basically good values, even though I had certainly a confused expression of them getting involved eventually yeah. in, in drug trafficking. Uh, but, you know, I justified it with all this us versus them thinking and, you know, a lot, a lot of internal justifications and somehow still thinking like I'm a good guy. Right. Uh, even though I was actually now in retrospect uh, and for a long time now, I've known that I was actually involved in something that was very harmful. So uh, in some ways, uh, I don't feel like a completely dissimilar person, uh, but uh, but certainly my mindset has radically changed, right? Uh, yes. Fortunately, got beyond all that us versus them thinking and all those kind of internal justifications and embrace this model that today I call radical responsibility of really taking ownership 100% ownership for each and every circumstance I face in my life. So shifting out of all those victim mindsets and, mm -hmm. and all that, all that kind of blame. But, uh, you know, it was really the, the time that I spent incarcerated, 
uh, that allowed me to really deeply transform myself and transform my life. And it was really drawing on a lot that I'd received before then. You know, some people, because now, you know, I'm well known as a meditation teacher uh, and a, a Buddhist meditation teacher in two traditions, as well as a secular meditation teacher. And they, they, they often assume that I discovered meditation in prison, and that's how I turned my life around. But actually, I've been trained deeply in meditation and as a teacher for 10 years before I went to prison. So oh, that really? kind of shows you that I had this kind of split life, this kind of bifurcated life and a lot yeah. of internal justification, self-medicating around the cognitive dissonance. But when I went into prison, I already had a master's degree in what was then called Buddhist and Western psychology. Today, the same program is called contemplative psychotherapy. And um, so I had a lot of training, a lot of education and been trained as a meditation teacher and had done a lot of intensive internal work on myself, uh, mm -hmm. but still some real blind sides and or blind spots and, and unaddressed shadow elements. And it was really the wake up of landing in prison and realizing what I'd done to myself and what I'd done, especially what I'd done to my son who was nine years old at the time, to his mom mm -hmm. and to my community, uh, completely woke me up and I became radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and really work on myself and, and, you know, just do the deep work and deep transformation, deal with all the shadow aspects so that I could, uh, you know, one of my profoundest longings at that time was that I could leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison. And I was originally sentenced to, uh, I was facing a, a no parole, potentially life sentence. Oh, wow. I was sentenced oh, to 30 gosh. years with no parole uh, initially. And, you know, I, I pretty much thought my life was over as I'd known it. And the paper the next day said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. So, you know, I had no surety that I would survive my time in prison. But I wanted to somehow leave a better legacy for my son yeah. than just his dad went to prison or his dad died in prison. Fortunately, uh, I was sentenced under the old laws in the federal system. So it turns out you get a lot of good time. I was actually in federal prison before I figured all that out. And I eventually realized that if I stayed out of trouble, I'd serve 18 and a half on that 30 years. And, uh, and uh, you know, if it was parolable, you could be uh, ostensibly paroled at one third, but uh, it was a no parole sentence. Uh, but with all the good time, if I stayed out of trouble, I'd serve 18 and a half. And then eventually on appeal, uh, one count was taken out of my sentence. And uh, that took about three years. And then at that point, I knew I served 14 and a half, which is what I actually served. I managed to stay out of trouble. If you get in trouble in prison, they start taking that away in chunks, right? You can end up doing all that time. And actually today, ever since 1987, when they went to determinant sentencing, there is no more parole for anybody in the federal system. And most of the good time went away. There's still some good time, but it's very little. So if somebody gets a 30-year sentence today, they're going to serve about around 27. And the only way out of that's a presidential pardon, which isn't going to happen. Mm. But anyway, I was fortunate and uh, I did serve 14 and a half years in prison. And I really dedicated that time both to training myself, transforming myself and to serving that community that I was in. Because, you know, a lot of people when they're in prison, they just consider it downtime, right? And it's just any, yeah. everything good is out there and I just want to get through yeah. this or sleep my way through it or but, you know, this was a huge chunk of my life. And I was already a practitioner. I'd already had a lot of awareness training. So, you know, I'm not just going to jettison 14 years of my life. I'm going to live this and, and learn and try to serve. And so I really tried to serve that community uh, that I was in to the best of my ability. and had a lot, a lot of opportunities to do some good work. And that's really led to all the opportunities I've had since I've been out. I've been out now for about 23 years. That's amazing. Didn't you also have two programs that you started in prison? 
Yeah. So, you know, as a meditator, I, of course, wanted to continue my practice of meditation. In fact, it was my primary focus. I realized that, you know, anything good I was going to be able to do uh, in prison for myself, for the world was going to come out of my practice. And so I, I, you know, I, before prison, I'd done a lot of retreats, a lot of intensive practice, a lot of extensive retreats, but I'd never really developed a solid daily practice. My life was kind of too unstable and, and, you know, too much craziness going on. And so I really dedicated myself to daily practice, continued, you know, became a really strong uh, daily practitioner, uh, really dedicated. And as well, you know, even did small retreats on weekends and eventually uh, surprisingly in, in prison, you actually get a vacation from your prison job. I taught school for 14 years. That was my job in prison, helping other inmates learn to read or get oh, really? their GED. And, uh, but you do to get a, you get a one week vacation with the weekends and a holiday. I could manage to get nine days and do a retreat in myself. So I would do that as well. Um, but at any rate, I went down to the chapel shortly after arriving at that federal prison to see if they had any kind of programs like that. And they didn't. And I said, well, I'm trained as a meditation teacher. I'd like to start a group here. And they said, well, no, we inmates don't start groups around here. Are you, are you kidding? And it has to be outside churches. And we got a long list of churches who want to get in here. So forget about it. And, uh, so, you know, I, I happened to observe at that moment, there was nobody in the chapel space. So I said, well, can I go in there and sit and meditate? And, you know, this, this chaplain was trying to figure out a way to say, no, couldn't come up with a reason. Was, yeah, yeah, but if anybody comes, you got to leave, right? So I just kept showing up and showing up. Eventually got a group started there. And so I had a, eventually met twice a week. So I taught that, led that group for, for those 14 years. But another thing that was happening was I was writing articles and publishing articles in, out in various journals in the, in the kind of Western Buddhist world in the U.S. And uh, there wasn't much going on in terms of Buddhist prison ministry or meditation-based prison ministry. Mm-hmm. There was just a little bit. It was just beginning. And so a lot of prisoners were starting to write to various Buddhist centers and organizations uh, seeking support for their practice and, and learning. And so, so some of these organizations knew about me because of my writing and started sending letters to me. And I couldn't, I couldn't correspond with other federal prisoners, but I kind of got away with corresponding with state prisoners and county jail prisoners. I just did it and they didn't stop me. And, uh, and so I got this kind of ministry going and then I realized it was much bigger than anything I could do for my prison cell. So I got a little support from friends on the outside, figured out how to start a nonprofit organization had somebody, you know, I did all the paperwork and had somebody mail it for me on the outside. And, and I, I didn't, you know, if I'd asked them if I could start a nonprofit inside prison, I'm sure they would have told me I was crazy and no, you can't, but I just did it. I didn't hide it. I just did it. And so it happened. And, uh, so, uh, that was the beginning of prison Dharma network. And, uh, which initially was about supporting, uh, prison ball, Buddhist prison volunteers and Buddhist prisoners or, or prisoners interested in Buddhism and meditation. Eventually we became non-sectarian across all spiritual traditions that are promote meditation Wonderful. and inner work and mm-hmm. contemplative work. Uh, and then uh, eventually when I got out of prison, we realized we needed also, um, you know, take a secular approach. So we, we support both faith-based approaches to meditation and secular mm-hmm. approaches to meditation in the whole world of criminal justice today. But it started back there in my prison cell. And today it's a, it's a very uh, robust organization that's, um, that brings uh, mindfulness and, and wellness and emotional intelligence training to the incarcerated around the world and also to now to correctional officers, probation, parole officers, police, uh, public defenders, wow. prosecutors, Amazing. judges, the whole criminal justice system. 
uh, it's, it's really a flourishing organization today. And the other one was, uh, I did my time. Uh, I happened to be sent to the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. With my 30-year sentence, I thought I was uh, prosecuted in St. Louis, Missouri. So I thought I'd end up in Leavenworth, which is a maximum security, mm-hmm. really tough mm-hmm. prison in Kansas. Yeah, uh, fortunately, I got sent to the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. Uh, because, I, you know, I, I was not a violent person, so I had no reason to have a high classification other than the fact that I had a long sentence, right? So I ended up there, and I got there in 1985, and that place has about 1,000 patients, about about wow. 600 medical, 400 psychiatric, and then there were about 300 of us in a work cadre that were just there to help run the place, like work in housekeeping or food service, janitorial mm-hmm. services, the carpentry shop, whatever. And as I said, I got a job teaching school. I had a degree at an education. So I got a job in a, in a prison school teaching school. And um, so when I got there in 1985, the AIDS epidemic was just going into full swing. Mm, sure, and, yeah. and they were bringing all the AIDS patients there from around the federal prison system. And, uh, and they were dying in horrendous conditions. But also people there were dying of all kinds of cancer and liver disease sure. and heart disease in really, really terrible conditions. And so with another inmate and the support of a prison psychologist and a prison chaplain, uh, we started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world. And uh, we started in 1987. And we trained a group of 10 prisoners, including myself and my co-founder, in basic hospice caregiving skills. And uh, and then we started working with patients. We were always assigned to a patient. I was usually assigned to at least two, a few times I had three, which was a little too much, but you know, you visit your patients on, it was volunteer work. So, you know, I visit my patients on the meal breaks, uh, on the weekends mm-hmm. and evenings, whenever I had spare time, I'd be up in the hospital, you know, helping feed them if they couldn't feed themselves, uh, helping them correspond with their family or, or communicate with their family, taking them to chapel, taking them out, uh, to the yard, just befriending them. And I think one of the most important things was just bearing witness to their life that they weren't yes. just going to die alone in prison, yes. unwitnessed, uh, you know, separate from their family and their loved ones. And, you know, they're really, you can imagine, you know, not only are you, are, you're in prison, which is an incredibly traumatic experience for everyone uh, and anyone, mm-hmm. uh, but now you've got a terminal illness. And most of the patients there were from penitentiaries. Many of them weren't even connected to their families anymore. And their real family were, were the, the men or women, this is a male prison. So the men back in that, penitentiary where they were from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now they're disconnected from them. And now also they're up in a hospital unit, which is a locked unit. So they, they can't connect with anybody, even in the general population. So they're really isolated. And even sure. if they are connected wow. with their family, many of the families were from the East coast or West coast, and they didn't have a lot of financial resources. So they were lucky if they got one visit during the course of their illness. Mm-hmm. So we oh became like surrogate family members there and, and yeah. really close intimate relationships. And I did that work for um, for the last 11 years that I was, I was there. And, uh, and, you know, over the first couple of years, I started doing research and was able to get some things published. And then out of that work started a national organization, National Prison Hospice Association. Mm. And today there's probably 75 or 80 hospice programs in state and federal facilities in this country as a result of that. And that's, it's one of the things I feel most proud of in my life. I feel good about, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. I didn't do it by myself. I worked with a lot of others to do it, but you know, it is something I feel that I did good with my life and uh, it gives me some peace of mind. Now oh, that is incredibly inspiring. And I'm sure so many people have been 
whether they realize it was you or not, but I'm sure so many people have been touched by your work. I wanted to try to transition into your book, Radically Responsible, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. It's interesting in, in reading just even the title, how you first started is, you know, you were had this 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 childhood or adolescence and young person angst and then not taking responsibility for who, for who and what you were. And then obviously the transitions of all that. And now you've written, I'm sure many other books, but this book here really focuses on the radically being radically responsible. Tell me more about the premise of this book. Yeah. Well, I usually describe radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing 100% ownership or responsibility for each and every circumstance we mm -hmm. face in life. And if you really mm -hmm. think about it, it is a pretty radical notion. And um, so on the one hand, this is really looking into all the circumstances we deal with day in and day out. And first of all, trying to see what our contribution to those circumstances is, mm -hmm. not for the purpose of self-blame, but simply for the purpose of learning. Now, the, one of the most important distinctions in this book and in the radical responsibility work is the distinction between ownership and blame. Ownership has nothing mm -hmm. to do with blame. This model is completely trans-blame, if you will. It's really about mm -hmm. getting out of the blame and shame paradigm altogether. So we're looking at our part in things simply for learning because if, I, if I'm in a circumstance I'm not happy about and I can see the steps that got me there, then I can take a different path next time and get different results, mm -hmm. right? So it's solely for the purpose of learning. And then there may be some circumstances I find myself in or someone else finds themselves in where we can't see we had anything to do with it at all. It really feels like it just fell out of the sky and landed on us. And it may be incredibly unjust. It may be something that should never happen to anyone. We wish would never happen to anyone. Yeah, and we may feel very victimized. And, and we may need to have that acknowledged. And we may need to get support around that. But at some point, the most salient question is going to be, what am I going to do with this? Here it is. It's in yes. my life. Maybe it shouldn't be here. Maybe it's highly unjust. Uh, maybe I had nothing to do with it, but here it is. Yeah. So am I going to let it take me down and, and solidify a victim mindset, which is, you know, it could be very understandable, but it's going to be very limiting to my life. Or am I going to find some way, what is the most creative way I can respond to this just to move my own life forward, even in my own enlightened self-interest to move forward? Because really what's going to determine my destiny at any point in my life is are the choices I'm making today, the actions I'm taking today, those I'm making and taking tomorrow. That's what's going to determine my destiny. Mm -hmm. And so it's really embracing that kind of ownership. And it requires a lot of self-compassion and really getting in mm -hmm. touch. The ground of this radical responsibility work is developing the experience of our own innate unconditional goodness, which runs counter yes. to you know, the kind of blame and shame and fallen nature of humanity ethic that's in a lot of Western culture, although we have all the other ideas of basic goodness in Western culture as well. But it's really, it we can, through contemplative practices like meditation, actually experience that depth of our being where it's unmistakable that we're not broken, we don't need fixing, that our essential nature is fundamentally good and whole and pure. And when we have that experience, it shifts everything and can give us the strength and the resilience that develop that kind of radical honesty and ability to radically own our life so that it doesn't trigger us into self-blame or self-shaming, yeah. but instead moves us forward in our life by, by putting our energy where the only place where we have any real power, and that's with our own choices and our own actions. With the people who read this book, is this a book that you read from front to back, you read it straight through and you're done, or is this practices that, that you, a person would read and then they would slowly incorporate that and assimilate the, the practices? How does yeah, it work? Yeah, it's really, it's really kind of a workbook. Um, 
I have exercises in every chapter and I really encourage, you know, you know how people, I, I meet people out in the world all the time and, you know, they say, oh, I read your book. And I said, yeah, did you do the exercise? Did you get a notebook? Did you get a journal? <laughs> well, no, not yet. I said, go back, get your journal and go through the book again. That's what's going to make it Read real. The directions. For you, you know? So I, I really encourage people to do that. And there are exercises in every chapter. And I encourage people to get a journal and really do the work. Uh, and and it's not it's not rocket science. It's fairly simple work. I try to make really clear distinctions in a book. You know, Tony Robbins been, been a strong influence on me. I, I think he does some great work. And he has said many times that what he wants the people that train with him uh, to become is what he calls practical psychologists. He says, you don't need to have a PhD in psychology, but you need to know enough about how your mind works, how basic psychology mm-hmm. works, so that you can get in the driver's seat of your own life instead of having your life just being driven by your conditioning. You know, we all live in the interface of our childhood conditioning that we had nothing to say about. And we are highly programmed beings. We know this from current neuroscience. We are highly psychologically and neurobiologically programmed beings. And most of the time, we think we're these free autonomous adults walking around making free autonomous decisions all day long. It's not the case. You know, uh, (laughs) input A1 comes, response B2 every time. We're very mechanical and very conditioned. We don't have to be. We can step out of that. Uh, And some of our conditioning is very helpful. I mean, we couldn't function. We we wouldn't be able to walk or talk without that programming and conditioning. But a lot of it is not so helpful. So we live in the interface between that conditioning that we had nothing to say about. We got most of it before we were seven years old and the world Mm -hmm. around us. And if we don't take ownership for learning to manage our own physiology, our own emotions, our own behaviors, our own actions, our own choices, then guess who is running our life? Everybody but us, right? Sure. And we're exactly. just a victim of our own conditioning and a victim of the world around us. So it's about stepping, it's about learning enough about habit formation, uh, our own autonomic nervous system, our own neurobiology. Okay. You don't have to become, you know, an expert in this, but knowing enough that you can get back in the driver's seat of your own life. And I think that's one thing that's that sounds wonderful. One of the many things about your book that sounds great is is very comprehensive. And not, not only does it give the the psychological aspects of it, but then it gives you the practical tools as well, so a person can understand, like you said, the foundational pieces, what the causality is, and then from that, the implementation of your work, which allows them to become the person that they want to become. We only have one more minute left. What would be the, your final response to everyone? Your final takeaway, nugget of wisdom that you'd like to give everybody. You know, this may sound trite or people may have heard this kind of thing a lot, but, you know, uh, the limitations on our lives are really only in our own mind. I mean, we have certain limitations, like, um, you know, I'm not going to be an NBA basketball player at this time in my life, right? But, you know, I'm 72 years old and I have three new businesses that I'm running right now and, and you know, growing and developing, you know. And, uh, you know, I came out of prison at 50 years old in debt, right? So, you know, any limitations that we think are impinging on our life are mostly up in our own head. And it's really about doing the work to get clear about who we are and what we want and then going for it and getting the help we need, getting the mentoring we need. But there is so much information available today. I mean, things have been so democratized by the World Wide Web. Anything you want to learn there is readily available and, and most of it's available for free. Right. So, you know, it's really about just getting clear about who we are, what we want and going for it. If we don't get do the work to get clear about who we are and what we really want in life, 
then we're, we're really just going to be controlled by the barrage of distractions and marketing and conditioning and everything else coming at us. So we really need to do the work. And if we're willing to do that, there really are no limitations other than our willingness to take action in our lives. Wonderful. Well said. If my viewers and listeners want to find out more information about you, Dr. Fleet Mall, where will they find all, all this information online? It's specifically about your book, Radically Responsible, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Well, then go to my basic website, which is fleetmall.com. That's a good starting point. Specifically for the book, they can go to radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And there you can download a free chapter and you read accolades by other best-selling authors and so forth. And then all of my online courses are available at HeartMind Institute, which is heartmind.co, heartmind.co. And if people are interested in the prison work, it's prisonmindfulness.org. Wonderful. My viewers and listeners also know that if they can't find all this information online, just simply go to the show notes at jamesmillerlifeology.com for this particular episode, and I will link you with Dr. Fleet Mall. Thank you so much for being a fantastic guest on my show. I truly appreciate your expertise. Thank you, James. Really enjoyed the conversation. I also want to thank you, my listener, for tuning in today. Please subscribe to this radio show through whichever portal you join me today. Also, please go to my website where you may sign up for the free weekly recap, watch my YouTube episodes, read the articles I've written specifically for you, and purchase my previous guests' self-help products. If you'd like to work with me, be a guest on or advertise on this show, visit jamesmillerlifeology.com. Be sure to follow me on all social media platforms under the name James Miller Lifeology, except for Twitter, which is James M. Lifeology. Once again, thank you so much for your support, and I'll talk to you soon.